Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest is Steve Paul. Steve is the chairman, president, and CEO of Boston-based Karuna Therapeutics. Karuna is developing new treatments for neuropsychiatric disorders. By the time you listen to this conversation, Karuna will either be very close to starting a phase three clinical trial of its lead drug candidate, or it will already have begun. The drug candidate, called CAR-XT, is an attempt to break new ground in the treatment of schizophrenia. The drug is a formulation of xenomaline and trospium chloride. It's designed to get into the brain and selectively activate a couple of muscarinic receptors. An earlier form of xenomaline was tested for Alzheimer's. It didn't work for that memory-robbing disorder. But as Steve describes in the later part of the show, the drug had a curious secondary effect in Alzheimer's patients. That gave scientists an idea for another group of patients. Timmerman Report subscribers can read an in-depth piece on this company from July of 2020. Steve is also one of the rare individuals who has truly seen it all in science. He did world-class research at the National Institutes of Health early in his career. He oversaw teams at Eli Lilly that developed important new medicines for mental health. Then, in this most recent chapter of his career, he went to work on startups that have sought to blaze new trails in neuroscience drug development. Sage Therapeutics, Voyager Therapeutics, and Karuna Therapeutics are companies that bear his fingerprints, and they are worth a collective sum of $7.2 billion as of this recording. In this conversation, Steve talks about his humble upbringing, which didn't exactly preordain him to become the scientific entrepreneur that he became. We also talk about the nature of the scientific enterprise itself, based on his unusual set of circumstances across all three major branches of science, industry, academia, and government. Steve is a very thoughtful guy on the nature of innovation and some of the pressing challenges we face with mental health in our society. I think you're going to enjoy this conversation quite a bit. It's very timely. Now, before we dive in, the Long Run Podcast attracts a devoted audience of scientific entrepreneurs and investors every other week. Would your company like to get its name out in front of this high-powered group of decision makers? Talk to me about advertising opportunities, which consists of the chance to splice in a 30-second ad into this show at the beginning and the mid-show break. Luke at Timmerman Report. And if you like listening to The Long Run, you'll love reading Timberman Report. This is where you'll get my in-depth coverage of the most interesting startups in biotech, along with thought-provoking commentary from a diverse cast of contributing writers that I select and edit. My first story on Moderna, for instance, was in 2013, a long time before it became a household name. As Bob Nelson of Arch Venture Partners says, Timmerman is always ahead of the curve. So what are you waiting for? Go get your subscription to Timmerman Report for $169 a year as an individual, or sign up your company for a group discount. See TimmermanReport.com for the details. Now, please join me and Steve Paul on The Long Run. Steve Paul, welcome to The Long Run. Thank you, Luke. Good to be here. So, Steve, before we get going, uh, did you have a birthday this year? Did you turn 70? I did. November 2nd. Oh, wow. Con- congratulations. Did you do anything to celebrate in, in uh, 
Uh, Quarantine? Not much. It was a very simple celebration. Just me and my wife and some Zoom calls with the kids and the grandkids and friends and other family members. That's about it. Well, that's the story of 2020. Um, And, you know, one of these stories, which is I'm really thankful to have you on the show with me today, uh, is is mental health. And this is just a... This is a, a kind of a hidden crisis, I think. Uh, it's, it's not making the headlines the same way the, the infectious disease crisis is. But um, I, I think we're, we, you know, it, it raises, it surfaces a lot of longstanding issues in terms of how we don't do a very good job of treating mental health, the whole stigma, people hiding it. Uh, you know, we don't properly reimburse people for it. I mean, it's all, there's a lot of things that need to be worked through here. And um, I, I just wonder, like, how, how has this year, um, it changed maybe the way you think about some of these longstanding issues with, with mental health. Well, I think Luke, the mental health system in this country was pretty broken going into COVID. Um, I've been in this field as a practicing psychiatrist and a scientist and a biotech entrepreneur for many, many years. And if you go back, 30, 35 years, we had a mental health system in the U.S. that could treat patients with serious mental illness. Uh, We had community mental health centers. We had access to uh, inpatient units when needed. Uh, Today, that system is completely broke. Um, Most people, even just pre-pandemic, would appreciate the incredible problem we had with opioid addiction. I mean, we were you know, we were just piling up deaths, uh, you know, not unlike COVID, but not like COVID, but not unlike COVID in a, in a kind of an epidemic of addiction and death in the country. If you recall, right before COVID, that was one of our major preoccupations. For sure. But even, even beyond that, you know, if you try to get somebody who has a serious mental illness, somebody who's got a bad depression and is suicidal or a schizophrenic patient who's acutely psychotic treatment. In this country today, it's it's very difficult. And it's difficult even if you have the means to pay for that treatment. And of course, many patients who have severe mental illness, almost by definition, uh, don't have those means. So this system was pretty broken uh, we, uh, again, with the opioid crisis, but also even prior to that, even, you know, the issue of, of, of homicide rates and some of these mass shootings really exemplified how poor the care of the mentally ill is in the U.S. It's, it's different in other countries because of the fact that medicine is more socialized. Um, there's less stigma more parity in terms of what we call physical illness versus mental illness, but it's pretty broken. And I got to believe that the pandemic is going to make things even worse. So I think underneath all of this, when the dust settles, we get a vaccine, uh, we get herd immunity in the population. I think you're going to just see an incredible amount of mental illness, disability um, that is just going to be staggering here. And so we're going to have to figure out some way to treat all these folks. Um, well, it's not, you know, your job to solve the whole system. <laughs> You're not the director of the NIH right. or the National Institute of Mental Health, but, um, uh, you know, you are a scientist trained in this area and a scientific entrepreneur doing your part. 
Um, I'd like to think that maybe we can rethink some of these big systemic issues because that's right. the environment in which you operate and which your patients have to get by. Um, Correct. And we're going to have to we're going to have to rethink this as a society. Um, Absolutely. But but um, let's uh, let's come back to you know those things toward the end. And I want to start okay. from the beginning with you, like I so often do on this show, and find out like who you are and where you come from. So I mean, uh, where where were you born and raised? So I was born and raised in Chicago, uh, the South Side of Chicago, and. Uh, you know, I would say had a pretty um, uninspiring youth growing up. I was not a, a stellar student by any means. Um, I got preoccupied with um, playing rock drums in a rock and roll band pretty much through uh, high school. Now, um, wait, wait a second, Steve. South side of Chicago. I mean, when most people say that, they, they think this is African-American side of town. Well, it was a little more integrated when when I was there, but uh, you're right. It was uh, it was a, it was certainly a changing neighborhood and a uh, changing environment. Uh, but there were pockets, and uh, you know, I uh, I grew up there, and um, you know, very proud of being from Chicago. It's a great city. Um, I also kind of went back and forth between the city itself and some of the suburbs. You know, even a little further south of the city, uh, but that's kind of where I'm I'm from. Okay. And, um, where, where did your what, what did your mom and dad do for a living? Like, what was yeah, your household like? Very interesting. The neither of them were um, neither of them were terribly well educated. Uh, both kind of through high school, and that was it. Uh, my dad was a businessman. He he uh, he he worked at uh, building buildings. He worked in the lumber business for a number of years. Uh, subsequently, moved out to to. To California, my parents were divorced when I was pretty young, which in those days divorce was not that common. A uh, bit of a, you know, chaotic uh, family life, not unlike many people, uh, but you know, it was kind of one of those things where you know my the music I played and and other things I got into were sort of reprieve from the from the family situation, if you so, will. Steve, you had um, did you have siblings? I do. Yeah, I have two brothers. Absolutely. Younger, older? Two younger brothers. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And now your dad moved away. How old were you when that happened? Oh, I would say probably 12, 13, somewhere along those lines. Pretty, pretty young, pretty formative period of time. Yeah. Yes, I can imagine. So your mom, yeah. what what did she do? If she's man if well, she's managing a house with three boys. Three boys, uh, as well as she could. Uh both my parents are now deceased, but um you know, my mom was not uncommon, I think, to people to go into psychiatry. She had her share of issues and uh, I think probably had a, a mood disorder, to be to be perfectly blunt. I, I can say that. And, uh, you know, struggled a bit raising a family uh, like ours without without, you know, a lot of, um, you know, income or paternal activities, so to speak. So it was a it was a not a easy childhood. But on the other hand, when I look at others around me, I see so many people that had even worse situations uh, than I did. So, oh. you know, it's it's not something you can really complain about. For sure. So you bounced around a little between different houses, it sounds like, so in the city and, and some of the suburbs, but generally mm -hmm. around that, that Chicago area. Correct. Um, you go to public schools? I did. 
went to a, a large public high school. Yep. Uh huh. And you you mentioned this rock drumming. Uh, this kind of yeah. a diversion. But um, what, what kind of student were you? Well, you know, I was not a great student in good part because I really didn't have um, uh, much of a, there was not much of preoccupation with academia in my house. It wasn't as if people checked on my grades or checked to see whether I was studying or not. And so I sort of gravitated to, again, playing drums in this, in this crazy rock band, you know, it was the time when the Beatles and you know, we had the uh, the British invasion and some of the early rockers from, you know, from the from from the U.S. So it was an interesting time, and uh, it was a, a bit of a distraction for me. But uh, it was kind of what I did. What was um, the What was your band name? You know, it's funny. We were called the Fugitives for a while, uh, and then we had this weird name, Captain Zero and his Bushmen, uh, which was kind of an odd name, uh, but. Um, it was, you know, in hindsight, it was a lot of fun. Uh, it kind of got me through some tough times at home, so to speak. Um, did you play like any large gigs or uh, was it just did. like playing in, the, playing in the garage? Well, we started like most of these bands in the garage, but then we got pretty good. It actually got less fun uh, the bigger the gig, to be honest. Um, you know, we, we had a booking agent and we had to be here and there at certain times. And we worked actually most weekends, uh, Fridays, Saturdays, almost every weekend during high school, we had a gig. Uh, I can remember, you know, and these were, you know, the days where you didn't really protect yourself from, from noise. I, the drums, I'd sit back and there would be these, these huge amplifiers to my right, to my left behind me. And I can remember taking my SAT tests, uh, with my ears just ringing, I could hardly hear any of the, <laughs> of the instructions. And that was uh, the at 8 a.m. the morning of, uh, you know, probably rolling in about 2.30 in the morning uh, from from the gig. So, uh, you know, that was that was high school for me. OK, so at what point did you get on the uh, the scientific track? So it's interesting. Um, I. I took, and I don't even know why exactly, but I took AP biology when I was in high school, uh, my senior year, might've been my junior, I can't remember. And I really liked it. And I had a, a high school AP biology teacher who was kind of a mentor. And uh, you know, it's, it's the old story. It just takes one or two people to have interest in you and vice versa. And I really liked AP biology. And I sort of thought, you know, this is pretty cool. Maybe I'll end up being a physician. Uh, and I, I, I remember going to my high school guidance counselor, you know, about the time you're sort of applying for colleges and that sort of thing and um, saying, you know, he said, what are you going to do? You know, I'd like to go to college. Maybe I'd like to be a doctor. He said, wait a second. We're going to have to see if we can get you in the college first. So it was uh, it was just about getting into college. And, and uh, I actually went um, to a pretty good school, um, Tulane University, which was in New Orleans, which I thought was kind of cool, although I'd never been to New Orleans. Uh, they have a strong tradition in music. Um, and so I thought that would be pretty cool. Uh, so I, uh, at the ripe old age of 17, not quite 18, uh, September, what is it, 1967, uh, you know, went on down to New Orleans and, uh, and, and enrolled at, at Tulane and uh, was a pre-med. 
in those days. Um, Did you get a scholarship or something? Because it's nope. a pri- private school. It's a private school. I, I don't exactly know how I paid for it, but um, and I suspect I probably wouldn't have gotten a scholarship uh, had I um, had I needed one. Um, I had a grandmother, um, obviously since deceased, who was kind of taking care of the family, uh, you know, with the financial situation. She was pretty well off. So I think she covered college for me and, uh, you know, went down and uh, really had not developed great study habits. And I was down there with all these pre-meds from New York and other places in the country and um, just decided I was going to hunker down. I'd sown my wild oats, so to speak, in high school and figured I'd hunker down and um, study for the first time in my life. Uh, and, uh, you know, I actually did pretty well. Now, this um, was fall fall of 1967, you say? You, you went to uh, Tulane? 68. 68. So, so I was 17, so I was turned 18 in November. Yeah. Okay. So this was, this was the fall of 68. That, exactly. that famously volatile year in the country, um, and Vietnam War was on. Then, what was your status or situation with well, that? Well, uh, good, good question. Uh, worried about you know getting drafted. Uh, you know, I had my usual uh, group from high school. A number of the folks that I hung out with were drafted and actually went to Vietnam. Um, and unfortunately, some of them didn't come back from Vietnam. I somehow skirted all of that. Um, I can't remember exactly what my draft status was, but I obviously wasn't drafted, so I never went. And uh, yeah, it was an interesting time. And like all campuses, including ours at Tulane, there were the the uh, you know usual kind of protests and riots, and we burned down a few buildings and that sort of thing. Uh, but we, you know, we all got through that. I, I actually kind of stayed away from that. I sort of said, you know, uh, by the way, I didn't enjoy studying all that much. I would have preferred to be um, possibly playing blues in the quarter uh, down, <laughs> down in the French quarter. Uh, but I realized that, you know, I wasn't there really to have fun, so to speak. Um, I was there to really, uh, you know, kind of develop a profession. And at that time, I was hell bent on getting into medical school. And okay. that, was, that was the preoccupation. So during those undergrad years, you, you buckled down and, and became a, a better student? Correct. Correct. Okay. Okay. Um, and then uh, where'd you go to medical school? So as an undergraduate at Tulane, I, I actually got very involved in research right off the bat. I, I kind of uh, was taken under the wing by a professor of biology who was working on cancer biology. In fact, um, he had discovered a herpes virus that caused a kind of a, well, a renal adenocarcinoma in frogs, of all things. And this was a really interesting model system because you could find the virus at certain times of the year when the frogs were hibernating and you couldn't find the virus in the tumors when they weren't. And we knew that the virus caused the tumor. It was a herpes. It was an oncogenic herpes virus. And so my job at the ripe old age of maybe I was... 19 at this point was develop a, a method where we could visualize the the virus the antigen produced by the virus at the various stages and that kind of got me into research and i decided uh to actually go to medical school at tulane down there because what what we were able to do in those years i applied to medical school 
after my sophomore year of college uh, and then went to medical school after my junior year of college without having a bachelor's degree, which was a little uh, precarious because had I dropped out of medical school, I probably would have been in there six, seven years and not had any degree. Really? But I went you to, you yes. really did buckle down and like <laughs> set aside the rock band and probably got a haircut and everything. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. My kids don't believe that I, I had long hair and was thin and was uh, played in a rock band. I do have a few pictures though. And uh, I must say they, they will acknowledge that I was probably cooler than they were, but it, it's hard to tell at my age. But at seriously, you're, you're telling me this story now. And it, I mean, it sounds like, I mean, in a formative experience as an undergraduate, yeah. you're really impressionable. You don't know what's out yeah. there at all. Like this just exactly. life, right? And then you exactly. realize like, aha, there's this thing, basic biomedical research. And That's who knew exactly. how cool it is? Eggs, exactly right. And, um, you know, it, it's, it's all those sort of experiences that, you know, sort of unpredicted. I, I got to medical school. And it was very interesting. I very, very soon after, you know, actually enrolling at at medical school, I befriended a a woman who was, uh, I was the youngest kid in the school, in the class. And she was the oldest kid. And she had an unbelievable history. She was from California, a single mom with, I think, three kids uh, by two or three different husbands or or, or fathers. And uh, she was a, a scientist herself. She had been a, a technician, actually worked for Jonas Salk at the Salk Institute. And uh, we still laugh. She's still, still alive. Uh, she's, she's probably 80 now. And uh, she, she had a very stellar career as a pediatrician, academic pediatrician. But she and I uh, became fairly close friends uh, during medical school. And uh, it was as a result of her that my sophomore year of medical school, I, I, I became interested in the brain and in, in neuroscience. And uh, so she had another friend who was a very famous scientist, a scientist, his name was Julius Axelrod. And he was at the National Institutes of Health in Bethesda. And so this was uh, 1971. And Julie, uh, as a result of her recommendation, said, okay, Steve, come on up and join the lab for the summer and just see if you like this stuff. And uh, now it was a very exciting lab at the time, Luke. Julie had just won the Nobel Prize in 1970. And he won the Nobel Prize for the discovery of, of the way neurotransmitters, certain neurotransmitters like serotonin and dopamine and norepinephrine were metabolized in the brain. And, uh, he, you know, it was an exciting lab. You know, we had, you know, about 15, 20 postdocs in the lab, and they were all, you know, Harvard-trained, great people. Now, now Steve, uh, this was the era, again, coming back to Vietnam, when there were uh, the Yellow Berets, so correct. to speak, at NIH. <laughs> so this, this, I, I discovered this in my reporting on the book on Lee Hood, and that's where he actually met yeah. Tony Fauci and a whole bunch of other bright yep. young people in those yep. days who uh, had a way of fulfilling their service obligation by, you know, going to work at the NIH um, yep. rather yep. than, or, or there were a couple other options too, as right. opposed to going right. overseas uh, in the military. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it, it created this massive magnet yep. for scientific talent in those years. Correct. And, Correct. and, and so it's like, you, you got a taste of that. 
Well, and many of the folks in Julie's lab were those uh, yellow or green berets or whatever you called them. And they were people there were doing their public health service commitment as a way of, of uh, you know, satisfying their commitment to the military. Absolutely. And, and they were the best and brightest uh, people that were in the lab just a little before me, people like Saul Snyder, very famous, won the Lasker Award. Uh, Leslie Iverson, who just passed away, was a very famous uh, National Academy member. So there was a terrific group of people. And the NIH was exactly as you say, Luke, was with just the most terrific talent there at that time, in part due to the, the war. Uh, now, when I subsequently came back to NIH, so I, I, I was in Julie's lab for that summer, and I just got so excited about science and you know, Julie was just a great mentor. We, we, we had lunch every day in the NIH cafeteria. We talk everything from science to politics. And uh, it was just a terrific experience. And um, so I went back to medical school, uh, finished up. Uh, I went subsequently to do a residency in psychiatry back in Chicago at the University of Chicago in Hyde Park. But I only stayed there a year. And then I decided to go back to Julie's lab as a postdoc and to finish my psych training uh, there at the National Institute of Mental Health. So I went back to NIMH and uh, finished up a couple more years in Julie, Julie's lab, where we started working on these neurosteroids, you know, the steroids that uh, subsequently we started SAGE Therapeutics with um, uh, a number of years later. That was work that I did way back in those formative days. And, um, and then I stayed at NIH and uh, quite bluntly never thought I would leave there. I was a lab chief, um, branch no, no, just, chief. Just briefly, yeah. Steve, did you sure. always think you would be a, a basic scientist in neuropsychiatry or, or did you want to treat patients as well and be one of these like triple threat <laughs> kind of people? Well, I really enjoyed the lab work, to be honest with you. Now, my particular branch had a couple of clinical research units. So we had some very severely... Uh, you know, afflicted patients with schizophrenia, bipolar disorder. And so I did do clinical research and basic research, but I, I never really vacillated much to treating patients uh, with one exception. And that is that during those early years at the NIMH, um, because I was a government scientist, a government employee, I, I did, I was able to legally uh, practice psychiatry uh, in my off hours. So in the evenings and weekends, I hung up my shingle and uh, saw psychiatric patients. Not so much, Luke, because I wanted to, although I think I was a pretty good shrink, uh, but it was a way of earning some extra money uh, because at that point I had four kids and um, I needed uh, I needed to, to supplement their uh, their educations and that sort of thing. But it really, the, the experience at NIH between the work that I did at NIMH and the, and the private practice I had, which was not extensive, maybe eight, nine, 10 hours a week, I think made me into a really good physician scientist, somebody who understood the clinical problems that we're trying to solve with, with new medicines. And, and, and all of that, I kind of credit to the experience I had you know, back at NIH. If you like listening to the Long Run Podcast, you'll love reading Timmerman Report. This is where you'll gain a deep contextual understanding of biotech from my writing and get ahead of the curve. 
it's a bargain at $169 a year for an individual to subscribe. Discounts are available for groups. Go to TimmermanReport.com to get your subscription today. The mechanisms, like the biology, what's going on there in the minds of, of uh, biochemically uh, in, in people who are suffering various forms of mental disorder. I mean, that, that sounds like that was your passion, working out those mechanisms and, and thinking about ways to, to go about treating them. That's exactly right. Uh, how do we understand how the brain functions, how it dysfunctions at a cellular, molecular, biochemical level? How do drugs, small molecule drugs that get into the brain, how do they modulate those chemicals uh, for beneficial purposes? And how do we make, make new medicines? So you're there at NIH throughout the 80s and early 90s. You said you thought you'd never leave. Well, you did. Um, what prompted <laughs> you to make that move to uh, industry? To well, Eli it's Lilly? very interesting. Um, so we're now 1991, 1992. I was um, the scientific director of the National Institute of Mental Health. So I oversaw the activities of what we call the intramural research program. So NIH institutes, as you know, they fund grants. That's the extramural programs of each of the institutes. But each of the institutes has their own intramural programs where they have in-house scientists. We had maybe a thousand people in the NIMH intramural research program. We were roughly 10, 15% of the NIMH budget. And I had the privilege of being, you know, being able to oversee that program. We had some incredible scientists. You know, we had Julia, Nobel Prize winner. Uh, Lou Sokoloff just won the Lasker Award when I was uh, scientific director for discovery of the PET imaging technology to measure glucose uh, utilization to image the brain in humans. Uh, we had eleven members of the National Academy of Science in the in the in in the as lab chiefs or in the branches. It was a great program. I never thought I'd leave there. Um, but uh, in 1992, late 1992, I was recruited um, to head up the neuroscience program at Eli Lilly and Company. Um, and that's what I ended up doing. Lilly had uh, just launched uh, Prozac, which became a kind of an iconic drug, as you probably know, yep. just a few years earlier. Uh, they were investing very heavily in neuroscience, neuropharmacology. Uh, they had a number of very interesting drugs in the pipeline, uh, two, two of which uh, the teams that I helped oversee launched, Zyprexa, which is an atypical antipsychotic, became a very successful medically and commercially successful medicine for treating psychosis, schizophrenia, and also uh, a drug called Cymbalta, which was a, a, a next-generation dual reuptake antidepressant that kind of took the place of Prozac when Prozac went off patent. And, uh, you know, these were, these were good drugs. They were important drugs. And in that era, you know, we're going back in mid-90s, late-90s, um, you know, they were in their time, you know, innovations. Now, but, but Steve, you know, wasn't, uh, was Prozac the first in the class of the SSRIs? It was the first in the class that actually got to patients, that actually got approved. There was another drug called Zymelidine. Uh, that was developed by AstraZeneca that was actually in development a bit earlier than Prozac, but unfortunately had some safety issues. And so it never, it never was developed. Prozac was the first uh, SSRI, first of this new okay. class of antidepressants that, that fundamentally launched. 
Did uh, but coming back to this move to industry, this is a big career move. I mean, you're think. What was your thinking? Was it that okay? We, we've got a lot of interesting mechanisms now from academic work that you know, yeah. you and, and others had done, and and actually, it, it really was the time to kind of you know move ahead with you know new chemical entities and and you know the things that industry yeah. does uh, to actually help patients. Yeah, I I think for me at the time. Um, first of all, it was kind of a shock to to people at NIMH. Uh, I can remember telling my boss at the time uh, that who was the director of the NIMH. I was the scientific director that I was going to go and leave. And uh, after he kind of got off the floor, I explained it to him. And I think it 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 sort of sunk in. And I think in that in that era, you know, there were not a lot of academicians. Uh, worth their salt, so to speak, who were, who were going to industry. A number were going to Merck. Merck. Merck had, you know, under Roy Vagelos's leadership, it attracted quite a team, but not many of the other companies. And um, I, I left because I thought I could have more of an impact, uh, you know, in in ultimately uh, coming up with new medicines. Um, People think I, you're a, a yeah. corporate sellout. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, there was a, there was a fair amount of that. Absolutely, um, I uh, you know I there there were some nice trappings of of, of corporate America that I I enjoyed. Lily, you know, being a sort of Midwest based company, I, I always viewed them as sort of the white knights of pharma, and I still do. They're they're a good company. They're honest. Uh, you know, pharmaceutical companies, you know, all have their challenges and issues and big issues about pricing of drugs and that sort of thing. Um, I have to say, uh, as I sit here today and look at what's happened with COVID, I, 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 I really have to say and underscore, you know, what a, what a gift it is to have this vibrant industry with all of its nuances and issues. Uh, if you think about it, this has been nothing short of amazing. And, and the same yeah. thing's happening across the board in cancer research, as you know. And I think, I think we'll be we'll be doing the same thing in, in neuroscience here in the not too distant future. It is but an anyway, important yeah, point that the, the industry is yeah. not monolithic. There are a lot of different kinds of companies within it, and you know it's a whole That's village. Right. I mean, a small right. aside, but like we got Moderna and Pfizer working together here on the vaccine, and and, you know, and we need both. Yeah. Like the the big companies yeah. with the global scale and the small companies that have the hunger to build something completely new. Well, um, a lot of the innovations coming. Luke, as you know, from the smaller companies. So Pfizer's yeah. done an extraordinary job, but not without Bionet, right? And right. Uh, if you look at even J&J and, and the NYU group, and you look at, uh, or the Boston, uh, the, the BI group, um, if you look at, um, you know, AstraZeneca with Oxford, it, it's, uh, and Moderna, you mentioned Moderna, but virtually all of these large companies, there's, a, there's an ecosystem. And That's the right. ecosystem, yeah. I think, is working pretty well. Um, and, you know, we need to be mindful of not doing too many things that would destroy that ecosystem because I think it's um, paying dividends handsomely here. We'll, I think a year from now, we'll be able to say for certain. But anyway. Well, I, um, I would add academia and government you know, as part absolutely. of that scientific enterprise, too. But that's a, that's a bit of a tangent. No, let's, let's, let's talk no, just no, a little bit. A, yeah. Well, no, it, it's impo- it's an important point that that it does take a village, and I call it, it the whole scientific enterprise, yeah. and it encompasses all of those right. parties. Right. So, so just to illustrate that, Julie Axelrod, in the seventies, one third of his Nobel Prize was discovering the 
drug target for Prozac and Zoloft and Paxil. Now, in those days, he was an he was an NIH scientist. Nobody ever patented anything like that. But that science led directly to probably you know a hundred billion dollars worth of sales of antidepressant drugs that you know in in that day had revolutionized the way we we treated depression. And and there's so many examples of of that. And that's the ecosystem. You're absolutely right. It it involves everything that we want to nurture and preserve. And not all the money went into Julie Axelrod's pocket, and that's okay. I mean, other people need to be, exactly. have roles to play, and, and there are exactly. important roles, and they need to be incentivized. And and you know, everybody exactly. has their set of incentives. Um, okay, that's <laughs> end, end of my soapbox. Okay, so no, it's good soapbox. Your 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 Lily years. I mean, you 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 ticked off some of these products. I mean, this was kind of like I don't know. Do you look back and think this was like a, a glory days kind of period? You're there 17 years, and and really, you know, came up with a lot of new products for for people with mental health. Yeah, we did. Um, and, and I think, you know, everything has to be judged sort of by its era. I think for that era, we transitioned from, you know, much older drugs to newer drugs that, you know, had some advantages. I, I wouldn't say they were, you know, light years better than uh, the earliest generation of drugs in this space, either for depression or schizophrenia, but they were better. And, uh, and, uh, you know, at Lilly, we did a lot of other things. I was head of neuroscience for, oh, I don't know, four or five years. And then I became a head of all drug discovery. And then I became head of R&D. So I had a number of therapeutic area children to look after, not just neuroscience, but oncology and diabetes and cardiovascular, infectious disease, you know, the various business businesses that Lilly, that Lilly was in. Um, but I'm a, a big believer of, of, again, this ecosystem and, and, and um, how important the big companies are, but you know, also obviously now the little companies and the, the innovation piece that I alluded to earlier. Now, uh, not everybody, well, so you're there in pharma, you're, you've achieved a pretty high station. This was around 2010, I guess, or, uh, um, right. and um you know, I imagine life is pretty good. You probably stay in nice hotels and, you know, um, <laughs> fly first class and, and all that. You got a team of smart yeah. people that report to you, but you get the etched, the itch to do something entrepreneurial. What was that all about? Well, you know, I was 59 when I retired from Lilly and uh, I felt like I really wanted to start my own company and or companies or be involved in, in getting something off the ground. Big companies are terrific. Uh, I had actually had more fun in my head of discovery role at Lilly than my head of R&D role. I became much more ensconced in administrative work and legal work and regulatory work and compliance work and human resources stuff as the head of R&D. It was, was gratifying. I had great colleagues, uh, great CEOs that I worked for and with, but um, I wanted to get closer to the science. And then I wanted to see if I could really get something off the ground myself. Could I, you know, this sort of pride of ownership. When you're at a big company like Lilly, you you know, people write on their CVs that, you know, I was involved in the development of this comp compound and this compound. And that that's all true. But there are thousands of people involved in the development of every one of those compounds, really. Um, and so I retired in 2010. Um, and that was a difficult decision. Uh, you know, you feel like, you know, you're kind of got all this influence and, you know, we had 
you know, 8,000 people in the research labs. I had a budget of four and a half billion dollars per year uh, annually in those days. And, uh, and, and you go from that to, you know, now you're going to start kind of going out begging for money to start your own companies. And, uh, but I did that. And um, I, I, I have to say, I, you know, it's sort of like getting out of your comfort zone. And it was terrific. I, I've had the last 10 years uh, have just been enormously satisfying, you know, personally. No, but uh, how, how did this actually happen? Was, was there a conversation, you know, with Mark Levin or Kevin Starr, somebody at Third Rock Ventures who, you know, recruited you? Not really. Uh, it was more first the decision to leave Lilly. And uh, I remember having a conversation with the then CEO, Sidney Terrell. And Sidney said, you know, I understand. I just want you to help me recruit your successor and to stay on a little while and kind of overlap, make sure there's a, a smooth transition. Um, what I did do, I, I had had some discussions. I remember out at J.P. Morgan with, with Kevin Starr in particular, Mark Levin, Bob, Bob Tepper, good friends. And, um, you know, I, I actually pitched uh, to Kevin the idea of Sage Therapeutics uh, out at J.P. Morgan in a, in a hotel lobby. And I said, hey, I think this is going to result in a new generation of drugs for a variety of different conditions, everything from epilepsy to depression, to postpartum depression, et cetera. And I had worked with Millennium at Lilly. We had a we had a collaboration with them going way back and in the early days of the genomics revolution and, and genomics and, hype, whatever you want to call it. And just to and be clear, I, Kevin and Mark had previously worked at Millennium, and that's how so we had a pre-existing relationship with these guys who were starting to fund at that time. Correct. And I I enjoyed them. I they're they're great people. And so Kevin and I uh, went off with a couple of other Third Rock uh, folks, and we started Sage Therapeutics. That was the first company started in about 2011 or so. Now, uh, why Kevin, was why yeah. were those assets suitable for a startup company, and and maybe not getting where they needed to go in a big pharma company? Well, first of all, we weren't working on those assets at Lilly. That's an interesting question. I, I sometimes get that question even today or these days where people say, well, you, you know, you, you develop and, you know, these new antidepressant drugs. Why didn't you do the same thing back at Lilly? And the short answer, which is the honest answer is we really, I really didn't think of doing it back at Lilly. I, it's not like I said, well, I'm going to wait until I leave Lilly. We were off, you know, investing very heavily in Alzheimer's disease. We we're off investing very heavily. This is in the CNS area in pain and, you know, the pain programs matured very nicely, Alzheimer's uh, less so. And, but I had always been interested in these neurosteroids, these neuroactive steroids uh, and GABA receptors. That was my work at NIH. That's what I did for the 18 years I was at NIMH. And I felt that we could come up with some new drugs as a result of that science. And it, um, you know, it, it turned out, I think, to be pretty tr true. We, we, as you know, Luke, we, we launched the first drug for postpartum depression, Brexanolone, Zolresso. And, you know, we'll see next year whether or not uh, Zoranolone, uh, which is the Sage uh, 217, ultimately launches for uh, 
for PPD or MDD. They're, they're, as you know, they're in development now, phase three. So we'll see. But it, um, yeah, these are important new mechanisms for the treatment of postpartum right. depression. First drug ever approved by the FDA specifically for postpartum depression. Um, you know, had a difficult time in the marketplace first year, but um, right. th- they're, they're experimenting with some different forms of, of dosing right. and, and, and administration that, um, well, I mean, Sage just, just did a big partnership with Biogen and it's now yeah. worth $3.6 billion again. So like there's, there's reason to, to be optimistic yes. Uh, yes. that there's something there. Um, yep. But it, but it does. It's interesting that you bring up this. It sounds like a question of prioritization, really, in in pharma. Like this just wasn't. There wasn't quite enough there for it to rise up the priority list of development, and so it was just kind of hanging out on the shelf, um, that, not, not really making progress. That's pretty much, pretty much it. Also, as I sort of became head of R and D, you know, ironically, I wasn't as close to a lot of the R. Uh, you know, as I traditionally have enjoyed being, and that's what happened when we we formed Sage. We rolled up our sleeves and and we hired some some really good medicinal chemists and some good biologists and pharmacologists, and we got to it. and uh, And the rest uh, is history. Now, I think the history is still to unfold at Sage, as you nicely articulated. We we I think mechanistically the postpartum depression drug works extremely well. Commercially, it's an IV drug, so we need an oral drug, and and that's one that's in the works. And but I think it's it's I think it's going to result in some some new medicines. Well, it is a, it is an example of a new organization being born. Uh, you know, uh, this is something comes back to something Lee Hood told me: that, you know, new ideas need new organizations. Um, yep. so sometimes like really new ideas kind of threaten the existing order or they just, yep. like, they don't really fit in people's pre-existing right. schema. And so like, it needs to right. like go off out, out of the nest and like give somebody, give it some, some oxygen, some energy, right. whatever you want to call it and, and see what it can become. And, and so you did that and, and, uh, it, right. it worked with the first one. And so it, did you kind yeah. of catch the bug for, uh, for entrepreneurship then? Yes. Yes, I, I really did. And, um, and you know, I'm still very involved with Sage, and still very excited, and you know, optimistic, cautiously optimistic that you know Sage is going to make a major difference in the lives of people with severe depression here in the next few years. And and that would be as we go back and kind of connect the dots to, <laughs> as you've done in this uh, podcast, to my early days, you know, sitting in an office uh, earning a living when I was at NIMH, seeing depressed patients. Uh, many of them congressmen, relatives of congressmen and senators and people like that, you know, it really nicely connects the dots for me. It makes me feel like, hey, maybe, you know, maybe I'll be able to do something quite meaningful for a lot of people. Well, you definitely don't wake up in the morning and think, you know, is there a need for this? (laughs) The the need's never been greater. Um, Okay. So I think we kind of want to fast forward here. You you had another stop there at Voyager Therapeutics, uh, interesting company on its own right, gene therapy for Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, other neurodegenerative diseases. Uh, You're there for a little while. And then you start Karuna, which is your current situation. What was the the genesis of Karuna? So so this one, again, sort of back to the future. Um, When I joined Lilly back in 93, we had in development a compound called zonomalin. And zonomalin was a muscarinic cholinergic receptor agonist. It stimulates a certain receptor subtype for acetylcholine, another major transmitter in the brain. And um, we were developing it, Luke, for 
improving memory in patients with Alzheimer's disease. Uh, and there was a lot of evidence that if you could stimulate this receptor, you would improve memory. How much would we improve memory in these patients? We didn't know, but we were developing the compound for that purpose. And uh, I sort of inherited this compound in phase one and sort of helped oversee its development through phase two. We did a large phase two study in patients with Alzheimer's disease. And we learned two things. One is the drug, well, three things. One is the drug did have improved, it did improve memory, modestly, uh, much like the cholinesterase inhibitors like Aricept, Tacrin in those days. It though had an effect that was completely unpredicted, was serendipitous, uh, serendipitous observation. We found that it had an antipsychotic effect. So in dementia, in demented patients, uh, a certain percentage of them, somewhere between 30 and 40%, will develop psychotic symptoms. They'll have hallucinations, delusions, agitation. It's a very bad situation, uh, kind of a medical emergency. You almost have to get these patients into a nursing home, into a hospital. And in this trial, in our phase two trial, we had at baseline, oh, I don't know, about 30% of the Alzheimer's patients in this trial had uh, symptoms of psychosis, hallucinations, delusions, agitation, vocal outbursts. We, we measure these with a, with a rating instrument, a scale. And lo and behold, uh, when we treated these patients with xenomalin, uh, these symptoms seemed to go away. And they went away pretty quickly within a matter of a couple of weeks, which is fast, was fast acting in, 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 the, in the case of antipsychotic drugs. We also saw that when we looked over the six-month trial duration, that there was a reduction in the emergence of these symptoms in the drug-treated arms versus placebo, and it was highly dose-dependent. So the higher dose had more reduction than the middle dose than the lower dose. And, you know, as a pharmacologist, when I see data like that, I say, this is not a fluke. This, this is not an accident. So, and, so uh, what you, you looked at this and thought, huh, we, we might have an interesting active compound, but for the wrong indication, or we're testing it for the wrong indication. Correct. Correct. Uh, now, we had one more, what I call fly in the ointment. We had some side effects uh, due to the stimulation of these receptors in the periphery, in the GI system, and in the salary glands and sweat glands. These compounds, well-known pharmacology will cause, you know, GI problems like nausea and vomiting and sweating and salivation, things like that. And that, uh, those adverse events uh, prove problematic for this drug. Um, we, we decided at Lilly, this was, call it 1995, 1996, we were just about to launch Cyprexa, this Blockbuster antipsychotic, um, which be, became a big drug for Lilly. And so we stopped development of Zenoma. We just said, look, we don't think this can make it. It's got too many side effects. Now, we, we were, de you know, developing it in older people. These were, you know, 75-year-old people on average. They were patients that had Alzheimer's disease for the most part. But we came back um, a few years later, and just for the heck of it, I guess, uh, we said, well, you know, this is really pretty interesting. Would it work in patients with schizophrenia who had psychosis, but were, you know, schizophrenics? And so we did a small study, uh, 20 patients. Now, now just briefly, Steve, you, you said yeah. we, but you weren't at Lillian at this time. No, no, you, I was you, at Lilly still. Oh, I you were? Lilly. 
Yeah. Okay. Okay. We, we did this at Lilly. Okay. And um, and uh, we did a study uh, at Lilly. It was actually published in 2008. All of what I'm telling you has been published actually by now and stimulated parenthetically a lot of work at other companies. Wow. Muscarinic receptors. See, what I've neglected to say is all of the antipsychotic drugs developed up to this point work basically the same way. They block dopamine receptors, D2 receptors, and a panoply of serotonin receptors. And, and frankly, they don't work much differently than Thorazine, chlorpromazine, which was introduced in the 50s in the U.S., the first antipsychotic, which, by the way, was also discovered by accident. Uh, another long story that we won't have time to get into. But the fact that we had a drug that didn't block dopamine receptors, uh, and that would have some real advantages, we thought, a very, a very different mechanism, let's just say. And, and, and those atypical antipsychotics that you mentioned, you alluded to, Zyprexa being in that class, I mean, they, they have their side effects, right? With Correct. weight gain and insulin resistance, uh, yeah, maybe some it. cardiovascular issues. So it's like there, there's room for improvement and, and an impetus for looking for yeah. new mechanisms. Absolutely. And, and up to this point, you know, it's been very difficult to find any new mechanisms that would work you know, going from preclinical data into the clinic. Now, this one was odd because we were in the clinic and then we had to come back and figure out how to improve the tolerability of xenolin uh, to make it more tolerable. We did find, just again, historically, we did find that the drug had antipsychotic activity, very robust antipsychotic activity in this small schizophrenia study that we did back at Lilly. But that's kind of where things remained uh, for, I don't know, you know, eight, nine, 10 years until uh, Karuna, the company that I'm currently working at, figured out a way to block the side effects uh, in, the, in the periphery uh, and to improve tolerability. And what we've done is we've taken Xenomalin, which never launched. It's not a, it's not a generic drug or anything. It's, it's, it's an NCE. We took that drug and combined it and co-formulated it with a compound called trospium, which blocks uh, these same receptors in the periphery, but doesn't get into the brain. It's a peripherally restricted anti-muscarinic, anti-cholinergic drug. And the scientists at Karuna, I was sort of an advisor, informal advisor um, to the company. You know, this was when I was still at Voyager. Um, you know, developed this, went to phase one with this co-formulation, and they nicely showed. So this is early. Now, would you would you call this like some kind of like dual small molecule or like what's the, the, the chemical matter like? Yeah, it's a dual small molecule, um, you know, in, in orally days, available, orally available, uh, great uptake into the brain, uh, good biodistribution in the body, but but good uptake in the brain, uh, very active muscarinic receptor agonist, very potent. It, ref it prefers, we now know, you know, some, somewhat uh, sort of the adage, it might be better to be lucky than smart. We, we also have learned that this particular compound, xenolin, which is the active pharmaceutical ingredient in this co-formulated product, actually preferentially stimulates two of the five muscarinic receptors, the M1 and M4 receptor. And that turns out to be really important in terms of the pharmacology that we're seeing in the clinic. Um, so we went back and did some phase one work, showed that the combination, uh, unlike xenomalin alone, was extremely well tolerated 
in healthy volunteers at certain ratios of the two drugs. We, we had to sort out, you know, how much zonolin, how much trospium, uh, what, what were the optimal ratios, et cetera. We did all that in phase one. I saw that data, Luke, early in 2018 and said, wow, this is really interesting. Given what we saw back at Lilly in both the Alzheimer's study, the dementia-related psychosis study, and the schizophrenia study, this may work. Uh, and by the way, we knew from the Lilly days that no weight gain, no Parkinsonian-like extrapyramidal side effects, no sedation, uh, likely no risk of tardive dyskinesia, none of the baggage, Luke, that you e e elaborated a minute ago that the current generation of antipsychotic drugs uh, have. And it works quickly within a couple of weeks. Correct. Uh, for people who Correct. are suffering these symptoms. And then for people who aren't suffering the symptoms, it delays the onset. So you, you, it may even have a preventive use? We, well, I think it's going to be prophylactic. So it will be preventative. Uh, we saw that in the Alzheimer's trial. Now in the schizophrenia trial that we just completed and reported out just about a year ago, um, we did. We only looked at acute psychosis. So we enrolled patients that have schizophrenia. These are chronic schizophrenic patients who are still psychotic. They still have symptoms. Now they're drugs that they're on generally, you know, the Zyprexas and the Risperdals and the Abilifies of the world. They do they do dampen the symptoms uh, in many of these patients, but they don't, they don't get rid of them. And so we enroll these patients, we take them off their medicine. This was a monotherapy trial, single drug trial, and we uh, randomize them to placebo or to this, uh, what we call xenomalin trospium. We refer to it as CAR-XT, Karuna xenomalin trospium. And, uh, and I have to tell you, we had some remarkable phase two results. We saw a beautiful marked antipsychotic effect of 11.6 delta on what we call the PANS, which is the instrument we use to measure positive and negative symptoms. Uh, well, this is 11.6 11, 11 absolute points on a scale. If memory serves, this goes from something like 30 to 120, with 120 being the worst and 30 being yeah. like you're fine. Right, And you're right. bringing people down 11.6 absolute points on that scale on, versus, on average, on average versus yeah. the standard of care. So the standard of care, you you know, we can, we can compare drugs. We didn't have a head-to-head -head in this phase two, obviously. It was just a, you know, straight phase two study, one-to-one -one randomization of placebo. But we can okay. calculate an effect size, as you know, it's called a Cones D. And we came up with an effect size of 0.75. Now, what does that mean? Well, uh, the average antipsychotic of, of the current generation, we call the second generation that's on the market today, be between, let's say, 0.35 and 0.55. So this drug, uh, based again, I will be cautious, on one phase two study was remarkably efficacious. And just this past week- A higher magnitude of clinical benefit than we have correct. seen with uh, predecessors. Correct, exactly. And we've actually now done some post hoc analyses, admittedly, where we've looked at categorical responses. And about 40% of the patients in this trial, you know, not everybody responds as well as everybody else. Um, we got just remarkable responses. Patients coming in, rated uh, markedly to severely ill. Five weeks later, about 40% of them leaving the trial, just five weeks later, mildly ill or better. 
which is really, really quite substantial. And uh, again, and what kind of adverse adverse event profile did you see? Good, good question. Um, Again, no weight gain, no EPS, no sedation to speak of, but we did see some mild to moderate uh, cholinergic side effects. So there was a little bit of nausea, a little bit of vomiting, um, remarkably no salivation or, or sweating, which is another one of these side effects, and a little bit of anticholinergic side effect, a little constipation. But when you look at this in comparison to what we treat patients with today, none of these uh, adverse events cause patients to drop out of the study. Uh, it was a large study, about 90 in, uh, subjects or patients in each arm. None of them dropped out. The dropout rate, by the way, was uh, 20% in the, in the CAR-XT group and 21% in the placebo group. And that's, that tends to be on the low side. Usually in a study like this, you get about a third of the patients that would drop out. So we, you know, we like all drugs. We do have some side effects. Um, but this past week, we, we did a, a very uh, systematic analysis and found that um, these occurred very early. They lasted for a relatively short period of time. And as I indicated, nobody stopped dosing or dropped out of the study for the side effects. So this is a pretty well-tolerated drug. It does have side effects in, in, in a certain percentage, a fairly low percentage of patients. But, you know, that's, I think, to be expected for something that works as well as this drug works. And you're, you're just now starting a phase three or, or, or plan two? Is that right? Correct. We, we had, on the basis of this phase two data, we met with the FDA. We had an end of phase two meeting. We got a green light to proceed. And that phase three study, the first of, of, of several, um, will start this year. The FDA did say that the on the basis of their assessment of the phase two study, the one I've been talking about, they will accept that as one of the two pivotals on the efficacy side of the equation. So we're going to run two more acute studies Hopefully, the first one, which will commence this year still, uh, will uh, yield uh, positive results like uh, the phase two, and that will satisfy uh, the FDA with respect to the efficacy side of the equation. And then we'll need some longer-term safety data uh, on a subgroup of these patients uh, for, the, for the safety database for filing. Now, in your, uh, in your wildest imagination or happiest moments, uh, what, do you, what do you think that this drug could mean for schizophrenia or psychosis. Yeah. And that's the exciting part of it. Uh, again, coming sort of full circle, uh, I, I, I sort of neglected to tell you also that when I was at Tulane, I actually started a research project on schizophrenia at Charity Hospital in New Orleans, was, which was a, uh, frankly, a kind of a disaster of a hospital where we had the, um, the mental health unit um, and, uh, you know, the inpatient facility where if you and I took a little stroll up there, Luke, um, you would leave uh, incredibly impressed with how severe mental illness is. It, it was just such a bizarre setting. But to make a long story short, what I like about where we are, and again, we're, we have to complete these studies and lots of caveats and cautionary notes here, but we may have a drug that is uh, very efficacious. I'm not going to say more efficacious than the current standard of care, but we're right up at the top. But one that also treats not just hallucinations and delusions, we call those positive symptoms, but also treats arguably the more disabling symptoms of schizophrenia. And that's the the social withdrawal, the apathy, the energy, the lack of motivation. 
That's the negative symptoms. And we saw a nice effect on those symptoms in our phase two study. And then very recently, we've done an exploratory analysis. We built in a cognitive test battery to measure memory and executive functions. And schizophrenics are very impaired. They have terrible working memory, terrible executive functions. And again, this is why they can't work. This is why they don't have relationships. Uh, and we saw some nice improvement there when we stratified by impairment at baseline. So to your question, we may have a drug that gets at each of the core symptoms of schizophrenia, which is a syndrome, right? We have positive, negative cognitive symptoms uh, and manages patients without them feeling like zombies, feeling over-medicated, uh, having motor movement to services we call extrapyramidal side effects. Many of them eventually develop tardive dyskinesia and the better antipsychotics out there, the Zyprexes and the Clozerils, they can cause you know, massive weight gain uh, in, in a substantial fraction of patients. 30, 40% of patients can gain you know, upwards to 50 pounds, which we don't have a problem with. So fingers crossed, um, you know, this would be a phenomenal way to cap off my career if I, could, if I could help launch with this incredible team that we've assembled you know, a new standard of care for treating this very, very severe disorder. Well, Steve, I'm sure there are many people listening to this right now who are just <laughs> way, uh, really hopeful that you're going to have success here because they know somebody in their family or their network of friends who suffers from yeah. um, this condition. It's so, so widespread and, and, and often uh, under the radar um, uh, of what we, you know, choose to see um, right. in our society. Right. But um, last thing I want to ask you, Steve, before we go, and, and that is, um, I mean, uh, people talk about neuroscience a lot as a new frontier in biomedicine. Um, you, you've lived your whole career here. Um, yep. do you, um, what, how, um, how optimistic are you about the next 10 or 20 years? Uh, is this going to be an area where we're going to make some real progress in neurodegeneration as well as you know, neuropsychiatric disorders? Yes, I, I really do believe that, Luke. I'm, I'm very optimistic. I mean, we've had some challenges on the neurodegeneration front with Alzheimer's disease, a very tough illness. But, you know, I think we're into some biology now that's going to yield some, some very important new medicines there. Uh, three, four, five years. By the way, for the inherited neurological disorders, when you think of things like uh, Huntington's and SMA and, you know, you know, all the various ones that are due to direct mutations, SOD1, ALS, I think we're we're getting very close to coming up with therapies that are really going to work. Now, they're based on really strong genetic biology, right? We know what these mutations do. We either replacing genes or knocking down genes, uh, but that's very exciting. A little bit behind is Alzheimer's great new, uh, I think, uh, you know, opportunities in pain, uh, some of these new migraine drugs, you know, really look great. Uh, and there's more on the horizon. In, in the area of psychiatry, um, where we think about, you know, major mood disorders, depression, bipolar disorder, the anxiety disorders, including post-traumatic stress disorders, there's, there's some really cool stuff emerging. And even in schizophrenia, although I've emphasized the work we're doing at Peruna, um, you know, there, there are three or four companies out there that have some incredibly innovative uh, new medicines that are mechanistically very unique. So to your question, yes, I'm extremely optimistic. Uh, I think neuroscience is the new oncology. <laughs> we're, 
obviously not quite where oncology is in many respects, but the biology is getting richer and richer and our understanding of the brain and how it functions and dysfunctions is getting better and better. I'm really glad you brought it back to the basic biology because that is where it all starts. And yep. it reminds me of something you said earlier about the, the muscarinic receptors that your current drug is, is working on. There's like number one and number four, it's like, you know, a couple of right. the five. And, you know, it's, it's just yeah. like somebody has to explore these things uh, because right. like you can't just throw a blunt hammer or it's rarely just one thing. There's one target you can interact with. I mean, but that's right. It's more complicated than that. And somebody needs to uh, explore. And so back to my soapbox, it's like, let's invest big in basic research in, in this area and see what happens in 20 years. <laughs> it's so incredible. And if we had more time, you know, these muscarinic receptors, the structures of these receptors have all been solved either by x-ray crystallography or cryo-EM. We're working with two of the best groups in the country, in the world, one in, Stan one in Stanford, one in Australia. We we dock our, our newer uh, drugs in these uh, binding pockets on these receptors in silico and just some exciting opportunities to take these these clinical observations and now basically iterate them to get even better drugs down the road. So it's, it's an exciting opportunity. It all starts with basic biology. Very cool. Steve Paul, thank you so much for joining me today on The Long Run. Luke, my pleasure. Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timberman Report. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was the sound editor. Music is from D.A. Wallach. See you next episode.